welcome to part 10 of 20 Years On, the series where we chart the changes in Hong Kong life since July the 1st, 1997. I'm Anna Fenton, and this week I ask, has God left Hong Kong? Did the British sail away in 1997, taking their Christian colonial overlay with them? Or did they leave a legacy of their faith behind, in a city where the majority of the population is actually Taoist or Buddhist? I set off to St. John's Cathedral, the landmark of Anglican faith in Hong Kong, and, incidentally, the only freehold land in the whole of China, to meet Anglican priest, the Reverend John Chin Chin. The biggest change is, of, of course, the movement towards uh, Hong Kong's return to China. Uh, that's had a fairly obvious and, uh, to be fair, expected effect upon um, the direction of Hong Kong in terms of language uh, and the times I did go to St John's Cathedral where I've been of course working now for 20 nearly 28 years by the um, time 1997 yeah, by the time we around. got to the time uh, to, to 97 um, one saw it very much as a overseas Example uh, of an English cathedral, both in language, in its services, which incidentally are still bound to the lectionary of the Church of England. That is a Hong Kong law matter um, in the Church of England. So they're quite, tradi quite traditional. They're traditional and still is, but we've service. had to introduce against the rules. You could say we've had, we've introduced uh, quite early. Um, uh, Sunday service in Mandarin in Putonhua which one could see as a, a, a political decision to some extent that happened um, in the 80s and uh, of course now in the church we have services in Cantonese um, we also for quite different reasons have uh, regular services on, in the weekend in Tagalog I know, and the church is so busy now, you can hardly get in, can you? It's this really full. Yeah. A very large percentage of our congregations taken overall are um, Filipino domestic helpers. Right, so the languages have had to change. The services are pretty much the same? They're pretty much the same. There's, a, there's been more of an attempt to cross uh, age barriers and produce the occasional service for uh, congregation of all age. Um, bring children into adult services. That is, um, following a trend elsewhere, it's, it has its drawbacks you know, in a way because it can lead, of course, to uh, talking down um, and ending up with Sunday school for all. <laughs> yes, I can imagine that. Mm. In terms of the bigger picture, we, we hear a lot about the difficulty of getting buried in Hong Kong, but, but you must come up against this every day because there's a complete shortage of places to bury people and, of course, people keep, keep dying, don't they? So uh, how, does, how does that get dealt with now compared to 20 years ago? <clears throat> there have been some changes. I mean, obviously, um, one fundamental thing uh, that we've had to recognise or the government's had to recognise is that due to the shortage of land, the burial, um, given 
the cost of land in Hong Kong um, becomes quite uh, prohibitive for average people. The average gravesite would probably run into several million dollars. Really? So very few people are buried now in, in Hong the Kong. traditional sense. Uh, we are using uh, civil crematoria, and so the new crisis, if there is a crisis, which there is, um, is um, the shortage of provision of what to do with remains or ashes. Colibarium, strictly speaking, or is a sort of wall of niches, um, for individual compartments for urns of ashes. Uh, they've existed, but in insufficient numbers to cater for demand. I have been involved um, over the years, occasionally, in putting ashes in the sea. Uh, until quite recently, it was made very clear that this is against the law. No one really understands why uh, ashes, um, calcium being put in the sea is a pollution or an environmental problem but it's a sort of internationally accepted thing that you don't do it without license mm. and the Hong Kong government uh, just a few years ago has uh, produced a designated area in the West Lama Channel and uh, with an application and a piece of paper and $5,000 ashes can be deposited in the sea and there is a, an ex uh, ferry boat uh, that is, is being made available and several families can go out together and do it uh, one after the other. So and is that popular? That's, as far as I know, it's working. Um, but uh, I think, you know, for uh, quite a few people um, prefer something that they can visit. With a headstone. They don't necessarily want to take the ashes into their homes but they want to be able to go to something, leave some flowers there. So uh, we now have privately built uh, colibarium, in mainly in the NT, and uh, they're very expensive, and they're not always particularly uh, built for permanent uh, permanent quality. And uh, this is becoming a problem. Yes, because as the population grows, the, the problem must get bigger. Mm -hmm. So what about the old colonial cemetery in Happy Valley? Is that completely full now? No, we have... Um, it's not completely full. Um, when they built the Aberdeen Tunnel in the early 1980s, they had to remove remains from certain graves. And those essentially bones. Um, they built a, a, a colibarium building of some size containing... Uh, many niches and part of it was used to relocate when they built the tunnel and then since then uh, that particular facility has been declared to be open to non-Chinese people that have performed service, recognisable services for Hong Kong in general which can very largely point towards the police force mm -hmm. or the former uh, colonial servants civil servants ERCO and other departments but it has been allowed to open up under certain provisions rather strict uh, regulation um, and I've looked after probably 20 or so uh, people in different circumstances 
And how many spaces are left in there? Um, it's quite a lot of spaces. Um, it's not something that comes up as a subject. I mean, it's um, it's a food and uh, hygiene environment department area and is controlled as such. Right. Now, how has Hong Kong changed in its, in its attitude to, to being Christian in the way it treats the poor and the elderly and, and this kind of thing? I think it's forgotten uh, very largely and, and not people need reminding that at the very most perhaps 8, 9, 10% of Hong Kong people are Christians um, the major religions in Hong Kong are Taoism uh, and Buddhism mm. and uh, we don't have I don't have any exact figures but uh, the Christian colonial overlay, um, which happened not only here but in other places that one can go to in Asia and Singapore, etc. Um, when I first came here, well over 50% of the congregations, for instance, in St. John's Cathedral, were spectral, um, Caucasian. And uh, obviously, my own church, the Hong Kong Shinkan Way, in those days. Um, That's the, the, the Chinese church. name for the Anglican Church. Yeah. Uh, it's now got something like 38 Cantonese speaking churches throughout Hong Kong and five English congregations. So the majority is Cantonese by so a the, long way. The majority is Cantonese. Um, the church was engaged in a considerable social um, activity after the arrival of Bishop Hall in 1932, uh, expanding uh, schools and social welfare institutions and church building and uh, taking out the Second World War. I mean, he was here until 1966. Um, and social welfare department of Hong Kong Shinkaway is large and incredibly effective, working mainly with, obviously, local Chinese communities. And so you'd be out in places like Tin Shi Wai and, and... Not so much. Uh, my area, which is um, as an expatriate... Uh, non Chinese speaker. Uh, we, in the cathedral, we have outreach ministers. We obviously are concerned about the uh, division of Hong Kong into both uh, the so called dem pro democracy camp and uh, the conservative camp, but also. Um, the division between uh, advantage and disadvantage. And so we do our best and uh, engage in um, programs and activities uh, to alleviate poverty and hardship and to take up the causes of those that uh, find it difficult to find a voice. Mm. Mm. Um, I personally am involved with a charity called Faith in Love, 
which was started by um, uh, the Chow um, Foundation, Gigi Chow. Um, and we are active in Tintron Y um, and in the, with the orphanages in the NT in trying to encourage aspiration and ambition uh, with young people uh, to give them a chance of an education and a future. And also the many elderly who find in Tintron Y living alone. That was the Reverend John Chinchin. Next, I caught up with prison chaplain Father John Wetherspoon in a busy Filipino church in Central. He finds Jesus thriving in Hong Kong's jails, even if he thinks the government should use simple solution based on Christian principles to solve our asylum seeker mess. Jesus in jail is very much alive. Um, for example, um, many inmates while in detention start reading the Bible for the first time in their lives. They often go to church services and they have uh, genuine experiences. They find the Bible gives them peace and hope and encouragement and as does prayer. So it's a very real experience. Now would they be, you know, Jesus in jail conversions or would they have been Christians before they came inside? Both types. Uh, for example, I remember a few years ago in Lychikok Reception Centre I saw a big local man, a Chinese guy, big guy, very sad and um, I didn't try to talk to him because often it's best just to use non-verbal language. I just shook him by the hand to say I was trying to encourage him and he didn't say anything, I didn't say anything but then afterwards I thought I'll offer him a, an Old Testament. I had a copy of the Simple Bible Old Testament in Chinese. I just held it out to him and he, and he took it and we, we didn't virtually didn't say anything but then a, a few weeks later I, I went back and found that he had started writing it out character by character in beautiful writing and he said it gave him peace and encouragement and courage went back a few weeks later again and he'd and he'd finished the whole of the old testament it's a, it's a condensed version so then I gave him the new testament in uh, Chinese and after a few months he'd written that out in full and again he found the more he did it the more it gave him peace and encouragement. So then I, I gave him English Old Testament and then English New, Te New Testament. And he, he wrote out the whole lot. And I've given him other books as well now. And other inmates have followed his example, people writing out the Bible. And it just they, they found it, you know, they can be pretty sad there. And this gives them encouragement and hope. So religion in prison is, is a very real thing. Now, in the last 20 years or in the last few years, We've seen a great increase in the number of particularly refugees coming to Hong Kong, and a lot of them would end up, sadly, in the criminal system. Now, you're, you're dealing with these people all the time. How, how are we treating the, the, the less fortunate members of society? Are, are we being good? Uh, I don't want to make it all sound like everyone's a Christian, but are we being Christian small c in the way we treat people in prisons? I think the Hong Kong prison system is one of the best in the world when you think of prisons in other countries and especially other parts of Asia with the death penalty and where in some countries where families have to bring good meals otherwise inmates have virtually little to eat um, and here you get a com free, free clothing, free meals, free medical care, the chance to study and there's no death penalty you know in many ways Hong Kong Hong Kong's prison setup is one of the best in the world um, 
Now, as regards the asylum seekers who are increasingly taking up places in the system, this is complicated. Um, I myself have tried to suggest to the government that it could adopt a, a one-off plan to solve the problem of the asylum seekers, whereby of the 10,000 uh, asylum seekers in Hong Kong, you could give them a, a lump sum, as the UK does, to return to their own countries, a lump sum of, say, 50,000 Hong Kong dollars, which is about what most of them paid to get here, paying to bogus companies or people smugglers. And I, I know thousands of the asylum seekers, and they've told me, they even ring me up, is it true, we're going to get 50,000, we want to go back. They would, they would go back tomorrow. And then um, you've got another group, a tiny, tiny group who are genuine, genuinely running away from persecution or danger, maybe two or three percent. Give them asylum, give them refugee papers by which they could apply to resettlement countries uh, for, for going to another place. And then there's a, the third group, people have been here a long time, have got families here, have got children going to school who speak Cantonese, let them stay here and help the workforce and I think that way would solve the whole mess. The, the, the asylum seeker thing for me, it's like a boil. It keeps festering. More and more people are getting into crime and trouble. Uh, if something like this could be done, a one-off plan, it, it, would, it, would, it would solve the big problem. And, and also, at the same time, of course, tighten up measures to stop people uh, abusing the system. For instance, in most countries of the world, there are many countries, on arrival in the country, you have to go through a procedure for facial, facial recognition and, and fingerprinting. It's done in China now as well. But in Hong Kong, as far as I know, uh, many people can still arrive with just a passport. That's all you need. Mm. And many of these asylum seekers and even some drug lords I know, they have kept coming back because they just changed their passport. Now, we don't want to make it sound like all asylum seekers are criminals, far from it, but it is true that a, a large number, due to many factors, shortage of money, chief oh, among them, exactly. end I, up in the criminal system. I know one guy, I saw him in, in prison a couple of years ago, he told me he'd been here ten times, and he said even being detained in prison is better than what he was living in in, in Bangladesh. The mm. poverty there was so great. So it's understandable they keep trying to escape from poverty and get money for their families working illegally here to get money to send back. But the system here is, is it's crazy. And I heard recently that it costs about 70000 a year per asylum seeker for Hong Kong to keep an asylum seeker. So giving them 50000 to go back, it just makes sense economically as well. Right. Now, coming back to how we approach life in a Christian way with, with faith and, and the best parts of religion, uh, are we living in a more Christian way, in a more faithful way than we were 20 years ago, particularly with respect to how we treat the less fortunate in society? Well, it's a big question. In some ways, uh, yes. In other ways, no. Everybody knows the poverty gap is getting bigger. Um, people with money are um, getting wealthier and people without money are getting poorer and more and more even ordinary people can't afford rent to, for their shops or homes. I, I'm very sad. I was very sad this morning in Jordan. I saw a shop that used to be very famous for, as a restaurant for tourists. 
and like many other shops in Temple Street in that area, it's now becoming a jewellery store for mm. for wealthy tourists. And this the, the greed thing that the the, the 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 landlords are demanding higher and higher rents, and people ordinary people can't afford that. Only the wealthy people can afford such premises. That sort of thing is a bad trend, and unfortunately, the government is the laissez-faire policy. It, it doesn't do much to stop people putting up rents and and as a result more and more people local people ordinary people not just asylum seekers are are, are suffering so do you think people are generally less philanthropic less generous less community minded now it's hard to say um, there's a lot of goodness in the community there always has been i guess there always will be but um, at the same time there's a there's a there's an increasing amount of selfishness. I remember a long time ago in Australia, where I come from, former Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies, on his 84th birthday, I, I heard this on a recording, I used it for many years later at school, he talked about this problem in Australia, and he said, what we need is not some economist theory, but a great mood of unselfishness. I think that's what Hong Kong needs it, it's what the whole world needs, a great mood of unselfishness because honestly the world really is becoming more selfish and people in the middle and people at the bottom of the scale are, are, are suffering. Prison chaplain Father John Wetherspoon. Finally I met up with pastor and former missionary and now head of Christian and Community Development at an international school, Steve Hackman. He sought and found God, not in a church, but in the streets, and then started his own church in Lang Kwai Fong. Well, I arrived in 1990 as a missionary, just came here for five months, and uh, ended up meeting my wife-to-be. So uh, I was here for, uh, obviously, a very long time, and ended up becoming a, a pastor in Lang Kwai Fong for a church called Island City Church. Now, you started that church... Um, a group of you yourselves, didn't you, in the yeah. 90s? Yes, and I think 1995, there was a group of us. It was, you know, it was the mid-90s. It was just before the handover. Uh, a lot of 20-somethings were looking for a church to go to. They didn't really want to go into a mainstream church. So we started one. We started one. It, our, we met at the Fringe Club the first couple months, and we eventually were able to get a place in the Holy Commercial Building, which is still there in, in Lang Kwai Fong. So you, you found God in Hong Kong. Where did you find God hiding out? You know, I, I've always found that you find God in the streets. You find God with the people. You know, we would walk the streets in Lang Kwai Fong. A lot of people would see Lang Kwai Fong as this, you know, within the Christian community, it was kind of like this bad place where, where people do bad things. But for us, it was always a place where the arts, good food, good music, and where people were alive. And we, it was always our heart to actually find God on the streets. And, and often we could find him in Lang Kwai Fong. So in general terms, Hong Kong is not an overly religious place, and there's a multitude of faiths here. Uh, would you say that, that God is around us much in, in, in the way we treat people, or are people really in love with money and therefore their faith and their religion takes second place? Yeah, I think that's that's been the dilemma and I think that's always the challenge in Hong Kong is we have a lot of riches we have a lot of blessing there's a lot of material wealth here and a lot of times when people have material wealth um, they don't always look for the, the spiritual emptiness that's you know often just you know in their heart and, and, and sitting right there but 
as you start to to talk with people, talk to people on the streets, you often find that there is they're, they're longing for something more than just the things that material goods can can fulfill. So where do Hong Kong people find that, and, and has it changed much in the last twenty years? Would you say? I think one of the challenges is you know when I read um, the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus gives the parable of the sheep and the goats, and you know he says to a group of people, "Hey, come into your reward," and they're kind of startled by that because they don't really know who Jesus is. So Jesus says, don't you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And when you were doing these things for those people, you were doing it for me. So I think God is really found in sometimes the least of these that are in Hong Kong. And sometimes I'm a little distressed when I see asylum seekers being turned away and, and people who are really in need in Hong Kong. We have all this material um, wealth and and not just the asylum seekers, but the local Hong Kong Chinese folk. When I see the the elderly, you know, having to scrape up collecting boxes, um, I, I just think that there's more that we could be doing, and in that we will find God and we will find love and compassion. So, if, if we were to look for the changes in religion in the last 20 years, where would we look? Where would we see churches that were full, that were empty before, yeah. or groups of people? And I, I use the Muslims as an example, who are now 30,000 strong, particularly the Pakistani community. Where, where would we go to find their faith? And, and are they very much keeping themselves to themselves, or is it accessible? I think that's one of the, the, the areas of optimism I have in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong can really be an example to many other parts of the world. What I really love is when I often I walk down Nathan Road and you see the large mosque on one side and you see the St. Andrew's Anglican Church on the other. And there's no animosity between those two areas. Sometimes I'm an American and I'll hear about how in a particular city in America um, if a mosque is going to be built, there'd be huge protests about that. There's a lot of animosity between the Muslim community and the, the Christian community, not only in America, but in other parts of the world. But here in Hong Kong, um, the Jewish faiths, the Hindu faiths, the Sikh faith, the Muslim faith, Christian faith, there seems to be a, a tolerance and a, a, and a harmony that you don't see in many other developed places around the world. Do you think we have the potential then to become a very inclusive society? I think the potential's there. Um, I've, I'm always advocating a more diverse Hong Kong, uh, a Hong Kong that's more cosmopolitan. Um, I think there's challenges, obviously, to that. But bringing that back to God, everything that I saw that Christ uh, promoted was inclusivity and, and tolerance. Jesus was always going around erasing boundaries. People, I think human beings, as, as we naturally want to put up boundaries between people, that way we can say we're on the inside and those others are on the outside. And Jesus, when you read what he did in, in, in the Gospels, he was continually affirming people. He, he, was, he was a Jewish rabbi, yet he was affirming the Samaritans. He was affirming the Canaanite woman. Um, he was affirming the outsider. That was Pastor Steve Hackman. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when I examine the idea of Hong Kong identity, what does it mean, and how the events of the last 20 years have changed how we feel about ourselves and the city.